Hello and welcome to episode number 107 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, October 11th, 2010. Now, I missed a couple of weeks of podcasts. I skipped a week, and then last week um, I had some technical difficulties and was unable to publish the interview that was slated for that week, so hopefully that interview will be published shortly. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Jill Richardson. Jill is a journalist, author, and blogger who writes for the blog La Vida Locavor and also for the news site Alternet.org. Jill Richardson, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, well, let's start with Cuba. Cuba is a country that has already experienced peak oil. Tell us about your experiences with Cuban agriculture and what can what can they tell us about the future of food production without fossil fuels? Okay, well, I think first and foremost, um, one thing that really bothers me a lot in the U.S. is the idea that um, organics are not scientific, that Growing food in an ecological way is um, ideological, it's going backwards, it's farming like grandpa. Um, And if you go to Cuba, you'll see that's not true, which, um, I mean, people here know that it's not true. But in Cuba, you've got the full weight of the government backing research and science, and it's incredibly modern and scientific the way that they're growing their food, and it's also incredibly productive. The trip I went on was 10 days. We went through um, several provinces um, on the about half of the island, you know, closer to Havana. And um, we saw a bunch of different styles of farms. But the one thing that Cuba is particularly famous for is um, a style they call an organiponico. And it's essentially a raised bed that has, um, you know, something bordering the side so that... um, the um, soil can't erode away. It's a technique they use when they have poor soil. So instead of um, growing food and planting into the poor soil below, they um, build little walls and then they fill it with a 50% mixture, um, 50% soil, 50% something like manure or, you know, worm casting, something else that's very nutrient-rich. And they end up with um, fantastic results Typically, um, places would grow, you know, about 18 different crops. Um, When I was visiting, they used shade netting in some cases because it's very hot so that they can grow things like lettuce that can't tolerate the direct heat. Um, But they also use a lot more polyculture than I've seen in the U.S. Um, So typically in the U.S., I'll go to an organic farm and you'll see a lot, you know, they'll be growing a lot but you'll have the lettuce section, the onion patch, the broccoli section, all in different places. And in Cuba, you'd see, um, you know, things growing together in the same bed. So you'd see a border of radishes around a field of onions, or you'd see, um, you know, uh, what would it be? I don't know, onions and beets growing together in the same patch. But there would always be, um, you know, two or three crops planted together very often. And then you'd also have a lot of herbs used um, to repel pests, so at the edges you'd see, you know, a bunch of chives or things like that. And they very often had neem trees, um, which they would also use as a pesticide. And um, they used a ton of beneficials, a ton of beneficial insects. They were very um, aggressive at 
identifying local varieties of insects that could be used beneficially and then breeding them. Um, and that was all done with the support of the federal government um, and made accessible to the farmers, you know, so that, um, I mean, it was just amazing the way that, you know, what what can be done when you do have a state apparatus. And I'm, obviously the U.S. isn't turning into Cuba anytime soon, um, nor am I endorsing their style of government. But it's amazing what can happen when you do have the um, the full power of a federal government backing organics. Let's talk a little bit about some of the articles you've written uh, for Alternet. You, in one of your articles, you wrote, Roger Beachy, the chief scientist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, recently told SmartPlanet.com that biotechnology is needed to maximize food production and reduce the use of agrochemicals. With a greater number of people, he said, we're going to have to have more crop per acre. If we don't, we'll have to expand agriculture to our parks, forests, and golf courses. Now, the funny thing for me and the ironic thing when I read this quote from him is that this is exactly what uh, permaculturalists want to do, is put uh, farms, not necessarily farms, but intensive gardens in our parks, forests, and golf courses. What are your comments on Beachy's statement, and how does this relate to the biotech strategies of companies like Monsanto and Syngenta? Wow, yeah. and We've actually got some really current news um, Beachy just got his number two in command, um, not appointed yet, but nominated by Obama. It's a woman um, who formerly worked for Mars, Inc., the candy company, but she uh, has previously worked at the USDA where she basically wrote a paper saying the best thing we can do for biotech is to promote it vigorously. Um, So she's also very, very adamant about promoting biotechnology and genetic engineering. Um, Beachy, for his part, comes from the, um, and I can never say this right, the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, which is the um, nonprofit arm of Monsanto. It's actually like right across the street from the Monsanto headquarters um, in St. Louis. So he's basically coming right off of, you know, Monsanto more or less into the government. Um, and so to hear that coming from him, it's not coming from an independent voice who doesn't have a stake or a bias in, you know, in his point of view. Um, and I do agree with you that I'd love to see, you know, food growing on places like golf courses. Um, you know, in, in our yard, we've dug up the entire yard and we're growing food everywhere, and that's that's what I like to see. Um, or at least, if not food growing, um, you know, productive plants that are sequestering carbon and, you know, being grown in an environmentally friendly way. But... Um, what what Beachy is really getting at is a strategy of the biotech industry. They've basically done their market research, and they found out that people aren't so hot on genetically engineered foods. They're not really getting any more enthusiastic about genetically engineered foods. I mean, people, if you look at the general population, they don't know very much about it. They don't know if they're eating genetically engineered foods or not, even though they are. Um, unless they grow their own food, you know, they're eating them if they're buying from the grocery store. Um, But they have no idea, and they're not really warming up to them um, at all. I mean, really, the numbers are pretty stagnant. So they've done their research, and they found out that the two arguments to make people um, want biotechnology and accept it are to say we can reduce our pesticide use using biotech, and we can feed the world. We can't feed the world unless we use biotechnology, and these crops will feed starving people. Um, and when you tell people that, they go, oh, I guess it's a really good thing then. Um, the 
truth, though, is that neither of those statements are true. So, you know, essentially, if you lie to people, they like biotech, which is um, not acceptable in my book. Um, if you look at it, um, first of all, the reduction in pesticides, that's been disproven. There was a report done in the last, I think, year that looked at it and found that actually there's an increase in pesticides used. Um, you know, what what happens is, first of all, you need to use Roundup with the Roundup-ready crops. So you're using a lot there. You know, now you're dousing your entire cornfield in Roundup, whereas in the past your corn would have died if you did that. Um, also, you know, let's say you're rotating Roundup-ready corn and soy, um, when you go to your soy rotation, you might have um, volunteer corn plants pop up in your soy field. And corn will be Roundup ready as well. So you spray the field with Roundup. It kills everything but the corn and the soy. And so then they'll use a pesticide that kills grasses to get rid of the corn. So that's another you know, herbicide application being used there. Um, and then any time... Um, Either BT or Roundup becomes, um, you know, a pest evolves resistance to that. Um, then they need to use something more potent on the crop. In the case of cotton, they actually still use a pesticide um, that's an organic arsenical called MDMA. Um, the EPA was trying to actually ban it completely and get rid of all organic arsenicals. And um, the cotton growers came back and said, no, 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 you can't do this to us because we have weeds that are growing resistant to our GM crops, we really need this arsenic. And so um, the EPA turned around in 2009 and said, okay, Cotton, you know, you could have your arsenic. So, you know, and all of that's not even counting the, um, this is just counting the pesticide that's being sprayed on, but then there's also the BT that the plant's producing itself, which um, I think they like to, you know, just not count because the plant's producing it and we're not spraying it. Um, but that's also pesticide being used. So the, the reduction in pesticides isn't really true. Um, and the feeding the world, that's um, also not – it's a bit more complex to explain, but it's also not true. Well, you know, one of the things that comes into my mind when I read this quote from Roger Beachy is I walk to the park near my house, and it seems like if we would actually – you know, when I look around the park, it's actually a classic kind of civil pastoral system. It's just that nobody knows it, and the only thing missing are the animals to graze the grass – of course, the city pays someone to cut the grass, but it almost seems to me like that would be something that people would like and would even be attractive if we were producing food in these in these parks and then selling the food at a place where people could, you know, just walk out their front door and, and acquire it. Yeah, I, you know, I agree, and I think it depends. I live in a pretty conservative city, and um, my boyfriend's running for city council here, so we're having these discussions pretty regularly because he's got me in the house promoting urban agriculture left and right. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to approach the city in a way that would, you know, that people would understand and would embrace what we're talking about. Um, and, I, you know, I think in somewhere like Berkeley, people would get it. And somewhere like here, people just would not. Um, we're, we're, actually, we're not in San Diego. We're just outside San Diego. But it's, um, you know, it's a hard sell here. I'd like to actually... I've looked into the herbicides used by the city, and I'd like to get them to quit spraying those. Um, I looked into it, and one of them is a carcinogen, and it's like, thanks, city. You know, or I don't want to really raise my kids next to these chemicals, um, or my boyfriend's kids is the case maybe. But, um, yeah, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to see something like that. I'd love to see, it, you know, sheep doing the job of the lawnmower and, you know, sequestering carbon in the soil instead of emitting carbon into the air like a lawnmower would. 
Um, and I'd love to see people enlightened enough to embrace it as well. Well, I'll tell you one argument that uh, may make some traction with the people on your city council and the people in your community is that um, this is going to generate money instead of consuming money. Um, so that that's potentially, and I, and I don't actually know that as, as having run the numbers, but I would almost bet you that if you run the numbers on it, it will probably generate more money than, than it costs. I th- and, you know, one thing that's interesting that we've been getting pushback on here, I've been engaged in the campaign for nearly a year to legalize backyard chickens, and um, the mayor just simply puts his foot down and says, we live in a city. Chickens don't live in a city, period, end of story. So, you know, and I've come back and said, well, what do you call New York City and San Francisco and Seattle and Portland and Vancouver and you know, every time a new city legalizes chickens, I send the entire city council and the mayor an email, and I probably drive them crazy. Um, but chickens do live in cities, and there's this bias um, that they don't. So, I, you know, I can imagine that being something we would butt up against as well, Genetic as it is. Genetic modification is not limited to the plant kingdom, and you've written about the current review process of GMO salmon that is right now underway at the FDA. Tell us about yeah. the most important points that listeners need to be aware of. Okay. Well, you know, in this case, um, the most important thing I think having through this recent set of meetings is make noise. Um, basically, we have the attention of everybody all the way up to the White House on this. They are paying attention. And um, the science, if you actually look at it, justifying the GE salmon's safety is sloppy, very sloppy. Um, so really, scientifically, they don't have much of a leg to stand on. However, if this is um, if this is left up to the group within the FDA that is, um, you know, kind of running the whole show here, and there, this isn't the higher ups at the FDA. This is um, a folks a group of folks called the it's like the Animal Biotechnology Interdisciplinary Group. I think is their name, um, but they're just trying to speed this thing through. Um, they're very clearly accepting sloppy science, accepting pretty lousy arguments to justify the safety of the salmon. And um, if we can make a lot of noise, the higher-ups at the FDA are going to have to look at the actual science and should, if they have any integrity, come to the conclusion that this thing is not okay. Um, In particular, I would say my biggest critique with the salmon is that this is a precedent-setting example. This is going to be the first of many if it goes through. Um, And it's setting a precedent. So if we say sloppy science is the bar that we're going to accept, you don't really need to prove that your GE animal is safe, is okay for the environment, is humane to the animal, or anything else, um, you know, then whoever else comes along next doesn't have to prove that their animal is okay either. And, you know, at some point down the line, we're going to see somebody screw up. Some GE animal is going to get out into the environment. Something is going to be fed to people that is not safe um, or is just simply inferior. I think um, one thing that came out this week that was significant was a ruling on um, RBGH, recombinant bovine growth hormone in milk, which although they're not genetically engineering the cow, it is a use of biotechnology in animals. Um, and the court finally looked at the science after 20 years. They looked at stuff that's been around for, you know, facts that have been known for 20 years by scientists and ruled that G, uh, the RBGH milk sours quicker, it has more pus in it, and it's nutritionally inferior 
um, and also has um, more of a hormone called IGF-1 that's potentially linked to cancer in it compared to regular milk. So, um, you know, it's there's a potential safety issue here, but there's also just an inferiority issue. Um, it's not the same as regular milk, and yet the FDA has been claiming for two decades that it is the same as regular milk. Um, you know, so, I mean, this is what we have stake, at stake here, not just for the salmon, but for all future GE animals. And I think that's why people need to um, really holler and yell about it. Um, and right now there's a pretty good way to do it. You can um, send in comments to the FDA on labeling. You can do this at regulations.gov but it would probably be easier to go through a group like Consumers Union or Food and Water Watch on their websites and send in comments through them. And then at some point pretty soon, the FDA has promised to put out either an environmental impact statement on the salmon or um, you know, an assessment that it's not going to harm the environment, one or the other. And at that point, it would open up, I think, a 30-day comment period on um, the environmental and human health um, safety of the fish. Um, so then people can comment there too. But even if you just, you know, go to whitehouse.gov and shoot off a letter to President Obama or go to the FDA and send off a letter to the commissioner, um, you know, on your own without going through the official comment, um, you know, method, um, you know, any way you can make noise is good um, because really that that's what's going to make them take a closer look at this. Okay, uh, you also recently took a trip to Mexico to visit with rural farmers. What did you learn while yeah. you were there? Um, that was fascinating, and it was really sad. Um, so I've been researching. I'm trying to do a book kind of comparing and contrasting different methods of aiding um, subsistence farmers and helping them be able to feed themselves um, in order to really you know, tackle world hunger, which is something that the U.S. says it wants to do, um, although... You know, I think the way they want to do it is promote more conventional agriculture around the world. Um, so that's why I've been kind of looking into this. And so Mexico was the more conventional example. Um, and I, all I saw was one slice of Mexico. It's a very diverse country. And I was about an hour and a half northeast of um, Guadalajara in the state of Jalisco, which is kind of, I call it the Iowa of Mexico. It's corn country. They grow nearly nothing but corn. Um, although they do have some cattle as well. Um, and what I saw when I was there, you would have rich landholders with tons of cattle and not in a feedlot but outside grazing and um, corn. And then um, you would have the smallholders that were literally just subsisting on what they could grow. There was almost no cash in their household economy. It would be, um, you know, during the year they would plant their corn and planted intercropped with beans and squash, just, you know, three sisters, just like they've been doing for millennia. Um, they would, you know, during a certain season, they would collect um, wild sweet potatoes called camotes from the mountains and sell them and hope to get 2 or $3 a day from that. And that was literally the only cash that was coming into their household. Um, they would harvest their, you know, squash, beans, and corn, and hope that they would have enough for the year. And if they did, they would eat. And if they didn't, they wouldn't eat. Um, and a few people I visited had enough corn that they could sell some during the year. Uh, many didn't, though. And um, they literally ate beans and corn three meals a day when I asked them. Um, 
you know, some folks I met had fruit trees, which was wonderful, um, because that was really one of the only foods they were getting other than beans and corn in their diets. Um, you know, some folks had a few chickens. Um, one person even had a pig and a turkey. Um, but, you know, the idea that something like a fertilizer or hybrid seeds is going to help them or a tractor, um, these are folks that in many cases simply don't have a penny to their name and don't have the money to go out and buy um, hybrid seeds or fertilizer or anything else like that. Um, and we spoke to an agronomist, and he said that the soil there, it's a clay soil, it's very acidic. And, you know, I think if you're looking at this from a ecological perspective, it's not that difficult to really help the soil out and, you know, make make their soil more productive in terms of just fixing, you know, raising the pH so it's closer to neutral and um, adding a lot of organic matter so that the soil, you know, can have water penetrated. It can have, I mean, but adding organic matter would just do so much. Um, but that's not the advice these folks get. All, the only form of advice they have <clears throat> comes from their local agrochemical retailers. And, I mean, it's amazing. It's a part of Mexico where there's no McDonald's, there's no Starbucks. They certainly have Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And the only other multinational corporations you see are Monsanto, Bayer, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, you name it. Every single one of them is there. Um, their names for hybrid seeds in Spanish is literally improved seeds. Um, and, I mean, while we were there, we met a girl who worked in a pesticide, well, agrochemical store, and she actually became sterile from the fumes of the agrochemicals. I've been told by another American who travels to this region frequently that, you know, there's deaths nearly every year from the pesticides. So you've got, you know, typically I think about a sixth grade education from among many of the folks we met. They're not really being warned about the potential dangers of the pesticides they're using. It's, um, they are using some chemicals that are banned in the U.S. or restricted um, you know, but they're not, they don't have the restriction on them in Mexico. It's, it's just really sad that, you know, they could have real meaningful help helping them grow more corn and have enough to eat on their land. And instead, the only help they have is um, from the chemical companies trying to sell them poison. You've also written a book called Recipe for America, Why Our Food System is Broken and What Can We Do to Fix It? So tell us, why is our food system broken? Wow. Um, you know, I think that that's something that you probably tackle every week on your show. Um, and it, it's quite complex. You know, I think if you sum it up, I think Frances Morlapay probably nailed it when she said we have a lack of democracy in our food system. And, I mean, at the crux of it, that that's really it. You know, a lack of food sovereignty, you might say. Um, people don't really have much of a say in how their food is produced and the type of food they eat. Um, you know, nowadays, some some people do. I mean, I definitely am fortunate that I can go to my farmer's market and I can purchase organic food. I'm fortunate that I can buy from farmers that I know, um, farmers that I trust. I've visited their farms. I've seen how they farm and how my food is grown. Um, but I'm the rarity among people, you know. Um, and I got into this because I was concerned about my own health. I grew up in a family where my brother was obese. 
and my parents were um, panicked for his health and constantly talking about, you know, this food will kill you, that food isn't good for you, don't eat this, you know, you can't have any more of that. And food was a real source of anxiety. Um, so I was trying to eat healthy and also enjoy my food as an adult. But I was, um, prior to becoming a journalist, was working in healthcare, and so I'd go to hospitals. And I would see people who were really sick, and often their diseases were um, preventable. Often, you know, it's typically the chronic long-term problems you see from people. It's not, you know, there there are a couple broken ankles or strep throats and things that are going to go away, but a lot of the people you see in your average doctor's clinic or hospital are people with um, diabetes or hypertension or, you know, high cholesterol, things that are not going away, and they need to deal with them for their whole lives. And um, very often this is preventable. Um, so that's what got me looking into this. Why are we as a society suffering so much on such a massive scale from preventable disease? And um, when I looked into it, it wasn't just um, people in their health that were suffering. It was um, farmers losing their farms, you know, being in a system that is not terribly equitable, especially um, to many of the most responsible farmers. And I'll just throw in um, an example of that. An organic farmer went to jail in my area this week, although I don't think he was held there. I think he was just booked and arrested and, you know, probably released on bail. Um, but why are we criminalizing organic farming, of all things? It's insane, you know. So the farmers don't really have what they need to do their job well. The environment is getting, you know, absolutely abused. And um, just in, also, you know, even people who live, the rural populations who live in areas where there are a lot of these factory farms that are producing, you know, much of America's meat, it's not fair to them. I mean, if you have worked hard and paid for your house and it's all you have, it's your major asset, and a factory hog farm moves in next door, it's going to tank the value of your house. You're going to be living in this horrible stench that you can't escape from. It might affect your health. And now you can't sell your house because you can't afford to and nobody wants to buy it. Um, so that's just incredibly unfair. So these are some of the problems I was looking at. And I think we need to take kind of an integrated look at not only the problems but all this, also the solutions. Um, because what I see sometimes is, um, you know, a farmer group wants to do something that would be bad for the environment or an environmental group will want to do something that would be bad for farmers or, you know, things like that. And I think we need to take a look at the full picture um, and come up with solutions for everybody uh, rather than, you know, kind of sniping at each other. So what can we do to fix it? How, um, you know, I, again, I think this is something that you do portray on your show on a weekly basis. My best hope is in agroecology, growing food in an ecological manner and working with Mother Nature, not, a, you know, not trying to control nature and working against nature, um, so that we can produce healthy food, tasty food, fresh food, um, in a way that is also making the environment actually better than it was. Um, you know, and doing so in a way so that farmers can earn a fair living um, for the work that they do and get paid, you know, the cost of production plus something fair to compensate them for their hard labor. Um, that's what I'd like to see. Um, and the book kind of tackles how we can get there with um, the goal of kind of uh, shooting for what is politically possible now. You know, under Obama, with our current Congress, uh, what can we get if we work hard? And unfortunately, it's not enough. You know, I think 
hard work can get us food safety reform, although, you know, that's controversial um, because people are also worried it's going to harm small farmers. Um, because the food safety reform we're getting, it's not a comprehensive, you know, let's stop having these enormous animal factories and, you know, huge monoculture farms that distribute to, you know, all 50 states that we know are responsible for some of these outbreaks. Um, you know, we're not breaking that up into regional food systems and going for local food. Um, instead, we're just trying to have more testing and more inspections and, you know, trying to fix, patch together this broken system. Um, but it's still an improvement, um, and it didn't pass. It came very close, and uh, Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma just put a stop to it a couple, within the past few weeks. We came very close to having school lunch reform, which also would not have fixed school lunch, but would have done a good job. It would have um, given the USDA finally, at long last, the authority to regulate um, all of the food in the school campus during the school day to get some of the junk food out of schools. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that the junk food would have gone. It would have been up to the USDA to decide what the rules are. My hunch is chocolate milk is not going anywhere, sadly. You know, so who knows how strict they would be, but it would be an improvement. Um, they would do a lot to feed more hungry children, which is also an improvement. Um, but I kind of summed up the bill as we care enough to keep you from starving, but we don't care enough to, you know, prevent diabetes. Um, because they're still essentially feeding the kids crap, and they're not funding it properly so that they can not feed the kids crap. Um, they were going to give it an extra six cents per kid per meal, um, and really what is needed is something closer to a dollar, and anything under the um, 35 cents is really just, you know, maintaining the status quo and helping schools make up the shortfall that they currently have with the school lunch. So this is it's not a solution, but it would have been better. Um, they would have improved the standards for, you know, what can be part of the school lunch and made it much more in line with the uh, Institute of Medicine's recommendations. And they're wonderful recommendations, but the problem is um, schools can't meet the current standards with their current budget. So if we raise the standards and we don't raise the budget, how the heck are they going to, you know, actually improve the lunch? Um, I just don't see that happening. Um, and once again, Congress could have passed this bill that would have been good, but not enough. And they went to campaign. Um, they found it more important to keep their own jobs than they did to pass this bill. And part of it is just this larger budget fight. So kids are really getting trapped up in this larger, bogus budget fight. You know, we spent all this money on war. We're still spending it. Nobody questions spending, you know, a billion dollars here or there on the Pentagon. Uh, the Republicans want to spend, you know, multiple billions on tax cuts for the wealthy, and yet $8 billion in new spending for our children um, so that we don't have to spend even more than that when they're older and have health problems. Um, that's controversial, and that can't get through Congress. So it's really, you know, it's really, really sad. Um, but these are the sorts of things that I was looking at that we could feasibly get done um, through a political system on a national scale now, and I, I find it really sad that we just don't have the consciousness there in the political system or in our people to advocate for, you know, what we truly need. I mean, I can't find a good reason why an animal would be raised in a factory farm and why somebody would want to eat that meat, which is, you know, inferior to the meat that you would get in a pasture-based system. 
I wouldn't want to eat it. And yet people kind of blindly, they say, don't tell me, you know, I don't want to know, I don't want to know what I'm eating. Um, we kind of need to break through that. You know, same thing with a lot of the pesticides used. Um, again, I can't find a good reason why we would put a toxic chemical on our food, why we would expose farmers and farm communities and farm workers to these chemicals, um, why we would put this in our environment. But, um, you know, yet talking about getting rid of pesticides politically is seen as a non-starter right now. Um, so I think, you know, the next step is really enlightening the public and also building the political organization. Um, and just to give you a hopeful example, um, from what I hear from D.C., um, the Humane Society, they're pretty um, well organized. They're well known. They're seen as mainstream. They're seen as totally acceptable. And when the Humane Society asks for something, they tend to get it. Um, politicians do not want to be on the wrong side of the Humane Society. If we had politicians quaking in their boots about um, people who are advocating for sustainable food, we'd start getting somewhere, just like you've seen um, the Humane Society actually pass measures to um, phase out or ban um, battery cages and chickens and veal crates and that sort of thing in the past couple of years. Well, as we speak, you have one foot out the door and you are on your way to Bolivia, a country that I've spent a lot of time in myself. Uh, very quickly, why are you going there and what do you expect to find? Well, um, you know, in part I'm not sure what I expect to find, but um, the reason why I chose Bolivia is because it has a very large indigenous population and they come from an extremely rich and complex culture that existed prior to Columbus coming over to America. Um, and they had very sophisticated agricultural methods. They domesticated a lot of the world's you know, most popular crops, potatoes, chocolate, um, that sort of thing there. And I would like to see what they're doing and how does that compare with something like Cuba where you've got modern scientists using the scientific method in laboratories to develop ecological methods of growing food. How do the you know, ancient methods compare to that? And um, you know, perhaps what do they know that we don't know? I think there's a lot of disrespect um, historically, if not you know, currently, paid to um, indigenous forms of agriculture. People look at it and call it backwards. Um, and actually it's often very, very sophisticated. So I'd like to see that for myself, and that, that's why I chose Bolivia. Okay. Uh, well, Jill Richardson, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you for the work that you do. I will, of course, link to your work uh, for some of these articles at alternet.org, and I'm sure I will include some other interesting links uh, for some of the topics on the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much, Frank, and thanks for what you do. That concludes my interview with journalist, blogger, and social activist Jill Richardson. Now, if you would like to get involved in the campaign to stop GMO salmon, I've put some links to the websites that Jill mentioned in the interview on the show notes for this episode. So I would encourage you to get on there and uh, check that out, click through on some of those links. And also, of course, I've included links to Jill's alternate.org articles and the blog La Vida Locavor. A reminder to all listeners that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. And that does it for this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, 
Saludos.